0: this is get uncomfortable the podcast where we talk race politics and all the things with me adam smith In many parts of the country, the long-awaited spring thaw is here, which for many means, it's time to plant. The COVID-19 pandemic increased the number of people, especially people of color, who found peace and solace in the soil. The Victory Garden is on the rise, and inflation, food shortages, and price gouging have helped gardening be the best option for people and the community. Today, we talk food justice and the power of gardening with Tiffany Dobson. Tiffany is an educational access professional from Stockton, California, and the founder of Stead in the City, a space to explore and learn new ways you can be more practical, intentional, and sustainable within nature, your life, and community. Tiffany is a blogger, YouTuber extraordinaire, and change agent who has dedicated her work to educating and empowering others about the unifying power of sustainability. Tiffany, I'm honored you chose to get uncomfortable with me today. Welcome. Hey, Adam. How you doing? I'm good. Good. We just get into it. Can you talk a little bit about have you, I guess the question, have you always been a gardener? Is this something that is came to you later in life? Did you grow up um gardening and working in the soil? Talk a little bit about that.
1: Um, this is actually one of my favorite stories to tell because for some reason, like a lot of people see people my age, like I'm 32. So I think that's like a average age millennial at this point um but a lot of people see people my age and it's just like how did you fall into this especially being from California because people don't put gardening in California together for whatever reason you know um but yes I have always gardened some of my earliest memories as a kid were gardening with my parents in our backyard in Sacramento um actually I talk about it I think I talked about it in one of the YouTube videos And then I talked about it on one of the blog posts about how one time I was afraid of saying the word dam because my dad was building a dam um, in the trench, like in our, because they did in-ground gardening. And so he was building a dam to stop the water from, I think like from overflowing the the cucumbers or something. And I was like, oh, you're building a, you're you're building a because I didn't want to say damn because I was like if I say damn I'm like I'm cussing in front of my dad I'm about to get in trouble um you know obviously now I know the difference between like damn and damn um but yeah like that's I say all of that to say I've always gardened um even when I was in college I gardened on my windowsill in the kitchen um the only time I didn't garden is when we lived in Japan because I was like I have no idea where to start And these bugs are unlike anything I've ever seen. And I'm just not, I I just don't need that in my life right now. Um, But as soon as we moved back to California, sorry, not to California, when we moved back to um, the States, we moved to Arkansas, how I picked the house was, where is my garden going to go? Because it's just such an integral piece and like part of who I am. So yes, I have Mm. always gardened.
0: That's really cool. So what is... Because when you talk about it, when you talk about doing it as a child and your parents teaching you those pace pieces, I'm sure that's a place of peace and a place of connection
1: mm-hmm. and
0: almost like a, a a soothing piece to your soul. How did gardening? Um, get you through the pandemics and not just the pandemic that is and was COVID-19 and the stay at home orders and the financial pieces, but also the other intersectional pandemics with, you know, uh, racialized violence and uprising. How did the soil and nature sustain you through those times, not just physiologically, but emotionally?
1: It gave me a place to kind of to take my frustration um, during the pandemic, we were living in Arkansas. Um, so you got the pandemic, which down in Arkansas, they wanted to believe was not happening for a while uh, in terms of COVID. And then also with all the racialized violence. I'm down, like I'm down in the South. Like I, I I, don't understand why people don't believe that Arkansas is the South. It is the South of the South of the South. It may not be the fun South, but it's still very much
0: oh, the no. South. They just elected a really south governor, didn't they? I, you see what I mean?
1: Mm-hmm. Goodness. But so it just it gave me a place to take my frustration, to take my confusion, um, to take, uh, to take all those things, and like to find joy. Like it take it found or it gave me a place to take my boys out. Like we could go out into the garden. Like hey, y'all want to water water the garden, which really just means spray the hose all over the place do that like find these little pieces of joy however you can because right now the world is an absolute dumpster fire and as your mom i don't know what to do so i'm just gonna do what my parents did and take me outside uh, during the pandemic we had a whole other layer of things going on with us because my husband was also deployed it was like look i y'all we just gonna go outside and do outside things because i don't know what else to do right now um but no, yeah the garden. It was definitely a place of refuge. And it also kept me busy because I was able to learn all kinds of new things. Like, you know, I was like, I need chickens. I've always wanted chickens. And so that's when I got chickens was during the pandemic. And I was like, I need chickens, but I don't know where to start. And so I had a lot of time, great internet and YouTube university to teach me everything I needed to know about chickens. And here we are. I've had chickens ever since.
0: That's really cool. Talk a little bit about your, because your vocation, right? You're a college access, student success person, right? That's mm-hmm. that's your vocation, but your work is really centered in Stead in the City. Talk about what brought you to creating Stead in the City, what made that a place for you really to pour into, and a place for your work really to center on. Oh, yeah. And the work of Stead in the City as well would be great.
1: Yeah, sure. um, Well, Stead in the City, it was born out of the pandemic. Uh, let me see how, where, where should I start? I'm trying to, there's two really defining moments for that. I could consider like the beginning of Stead in the City. So the first one was I have this garden, this fairly, this was like the largest garden I've ever had at that point. Um, and I was like, I need to name it. Everyone names their farm or names their garden or you know, their ranch or whatever. And I don't know how I came on Stead in the City, but I just remember saying sex in the city. And then I was like, Stead in the city. I like this. And so then I started the Instagram page. And um, one of the people that I follow, and I'm actually we're apparently we we were friends for a while, but then I moved, she moved. And so we kind of um, like the lines of communication broke down. Uh, But her name is Jessica Sowards of Roots and Refuge. And if there's anyone on here that's listening, that knows homesteading, that knows farming, they absolutely know Roots and Refuge, Jessica um, or Jess and Sweet Maya. Um, They are beautiful, beautiful people, stewards of the land, stewards of dreams and goals. And just they're fantastic people. But she had asked um on Instagram to share black and brown growers, because this was right after George Floyd had been murdered, and everybody was just angry. And so it's spilling over into the homesteading world. It's spilling over into the gardening world. And she was like, "Hey, I want to uplift black and brown voices in this conversation in terms of like gardening and homesteading." So I shared my Instagram with her really fast. I might have had like fifteen followers. When I did that, and I just like threw my phone clear across the room because I was like, I don't want to know what happens. I don't want this stress. Whatever. I woke up the next day and I had like eight thousand followers because she had shared my page out. Um, this is really important because she also lived twenty minutes away from me. So then that's how our like friendship kind of that's how our friendship started. Um, she invited me out to her farm. Fantastic! It was so much fun. I could talk about that for days. Um, So that's one portion of the start of Stead in the City. Um, But I guess the more sociological kind of context to it is, you know, I just started the Instagram page for Stead in the City, and I wanted something to share out about uh, just what's going on in the world. Like what's with COVID, with um, George Floyd, with the riots, I hate the, they weren't riots folks. Anyway, um, with all of that going on, I wanted to share something out and I wanted it to be very eloquent and I wanted it to be centered around gardening because that's how I was able to make a lot of meaning out of everything that was going on. And so I came up with, um, we're all one seed away from harvest. Uh, That was, I still use that quote to this day. Like that is, I live by that, in terms of my work, in terms of my job, in terms of my family, we are all one seed away from harvest. And in the, in the obvious sense, of course, you plant a seed, something grows, you get a harvest. But in the not obvious sense, let's say you want to learn something. Let's here. Let's say um, you see on the news, just like all of us, all of this like racialized violence going on and you want to understand it. Well, how do you, how do you start understanding it? You, put, like, you plant that seed for yourself of, I want to understand this. So you plant that seed. Your harvest is going to be knowledge of what's going on around you, why these things are going on around you. And then as any gardener will tell you, you're going to share that harvest. You're going to share that knowledge. You're going to share that information. You're going to share those things that you learned because it's not something that you're supposed to keep to yourself. You never keep a harvest to yourself. Um, and so that that began the journey of me sharing my harvest of Stead in the City in terms of food justice, um, social justice. And I don't want to separate social justice and food justice because they're the same thing. Like food justice is this giant onion that has just layers upon layers upon layers upon layers. Um, And so from that quote, we're all one seed away from harvest began my mission to tie gardening to all these other things that I care about in the world, educational access, um, studying race and ethnicity, redlining, how ghettos were created, how projects were created, um, poverty diseases, anything that falls under food justice, Stud in the City became my way of sharing out that information and sharing out practical solutions in a practical sense, um, and in a sustainable sense.
0: You've done that so well, because interesting as a person who's kind of a fan of Stead in the City, and we will share Tiffany's Instagram in the notes, her YouTube in the notes for this episode. So you can check her out so we can get more than 8,000 followers. But the key <laughs> is right. Um, I still I don't even remember how Tiffany and I linked up, right? It, it's just crazy, but it, you were sharing out stuff. and some of the best um collaborations that I've had in my career are people that I've never met in person. I've never met Tiffany Dobson, my sister in person, not one time. And there has been so many things we've leaned into together. I've given Tiffany my students and said, hey, Tiff, can you talk to this student of mine who's doing XYZ? Um, We looked to do some really collaborative stuff in Stockton. We talked about I still remember living in Knoxville, Tennessee and walking around my neighborhood, because that's the only way I could manage through the pandemic. And talking to you on my AirPods about how your vision for instead of the city and growing it. And you were like, I just need to talk to somebody who is also trying to build a their work, but their work that centers on meeting, but also centers on justice, which also centers on even ministry. And how do you grow that out? Can you talk a little bit about, because you talked about kind of this intersect on how you feel like food justice, social justice, right? And it all gets back to redlining. It all gets back to colonialism and anti-Blackness. But even more for us as Black and Brown folks, we are a communing people, where there's a book talks about Bowling Alone, the book, and it talks about how people go into their subdivisions and they go into their attached garages and the doors shut. And then everything is in the back of their house, their deck, everything in the back. And nobody's even everything's connected. So they don't have to talk to anybody out front. But that's really not how black folks, indigenous folks, Southeast Asian folks, Latinx folks operate. We are still front porch people right i have sat on many a slave plantation i think about stagville in north carolina and sitting in the slave quarters and you can look outside the windows of these slave quarters not real windows but not glass windows and you can see where the community was built where these places were too hot, the food was scraps. We turned around and created community and village and belonging and culture and history in these places. So talk a little bit about that culture of black and brown folks being community folks, right? And how the harvest and gardening and feeding each other also feeds our culture and also uplifts us as a people and how it's a justice movement as well.
1: Whenever Black folks, and of course, like I can only really speak, well, I can't speak for the Black community because I am just one Black woman, but I can only speak from my experiences as a Black woman. But when Black, Brown, Indigenous, um, Southeast Asian, AAPI, whenever we do anything, it's an act of resistance, and that act of resistance is justice for us because we only, you know, we we only get justice when we kind of take it. You know, for lack of a better phrase or lack of a better sense, uh, but yeah. So, like, when I'm thinking about us being porch people, I think about uh, their eyes are watching God by you know Zora Neale Hurston. I reread, I reread it earlier this year, and the presence of the porch, the presence of the porch sitters, um, that's like a whole new other character in itself. Like, it's not even just like a motif or anything; it's a character. When Janie came back into town in the beginning of the book, what was the first vantage point that we got? The folks sitting on the porch, gossiping, talking about like, who does she think she is strolling back up in here after all these years. When Joe came into town and starts, you know, preaching about his vision, he does it from a porch, Uh, the porch of the store. It's like a storefront, but still it's, it centers around that porch. When anything big happened in the story, um, Hurston always included the vantage point of the porch or the people from the porch, like what they were saying as they were sitting on the porch. And like Zora Neale Hurston, she is beyond an author. She's an anthropologist, a sociologist. A, I'm, I even say she's a historian. Uh, that wasn't done by accident. It wasn't just, oh, I need some way to include the opinions of a bunch of people. No, that's just, it's ancestral for us. Being on the porch and you know knowing what's going on in the neighborhood, half the time gossiping about what's going on in the neighborhood, but knowing what's going on in the neighborhood and going on and knowing what's going on with our neighbors is just—it's a part of us that I feel has been lost. You know, by the everyone goes into their um, garages, closes their garage, goes into their house, does stuff in their backyard. Um, a lot of that has been lost, and it's—it's it's kind of unfortunate, actually. Um, because when we remove that touch point, we take away that opportunity to be a community. And when we're a community, we're at our strongest. When we are at our strongest, we strive to get justice in whatever ways that we can get those in whatever, yeah, in whatever way we can get that justice. Um, how this all ties into gardening, although you may be a single gardener or a sole gardener gardening in your backyard, gardening. In the grand scheme of things, is not a solitary activity. I promise you, you're not going to just go to the store, buy a seed packet, or buy some seed, or buy like seedlings, and not talk to somebody. Especially if you go to like a local nursery or like a really popular nursery, mm-hmm. or even if you go to like Home Depot or Lowe's, you're not not going to talk to people. Um, you're not not going to go on YouTube and look up information where you're going to meet a ton of people who are doing the exact same thing that you are. You're not going to harvest your, like harvest your food and not share it with people. And it's not because, you know you have this benevolence of, "Oh, you know, I'm going to share out this harvest, and this is what it's for." No, you just have too many damn vegetables, because that's what happens when you garden. You end up with too much stuff, and there's only so many ways you can eat a zucchini. There's only so many ways you can preserve a tomato. You're going to keep what you need for yourself and for your family, but then you're going to share it out it's inevitable. And so gardening is a communal activity. And I love that there's like a resurgence of gardening, or at least a visible resurgence, I'll put it that way, because there's a lot of things that people have always done or always continued to do that just wasn't visible, because there wasn't a spotlight put on it. But I love that there is a visible resurgence of gardening and growing and land stewardship within the Black community, within the Brown community and the Southeast Asian community and the AAPI, AAPI community, because that with that resurgence of growing is that resurgence of community and resurgence of fellowship in a very basic, but not like basic, like bad, but just basic, instinctual in a very instinctual and ancestral way. Mm. That I, it's just so beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful.
0: At the core of people, it's some of the conversations we've had, I've had with others as we've talked about how this world is trying to, um, this country is certain folks are trying to erase history. Their own history, right? Mm-hmm. And not understanding the DNA of the people who you've tried to remove from this planet Black folks, descendants of slaves, indigenous folks, native folks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you are waking up the wrong things. <laughs> you do not understand who you might want to read your own history books to mm-hmm. at least know you tried to wipe us from the whole earth and we're still here. And so when you are when you are gardening and you are doing those kind of things, it starts waking up things in you that mm-hmm. I would think would then sustain you when you go to work and deal with workplace trauma and you deal with medical trauma and you deal with political things and you deal with all the things that we deal with, getting to those literal roots, right? Mm -hmm. Um, can provide that sustaining. One of the pieces that you mentioned about living in Arkansas, (laughs) I lived in the deep South for a while, Alabama, and Mm -hmm. I can tell you there were literal miles upon miles where you couldn't find fresh produce, where a Dollar General was on every corner But there wasn't a Whole Foods for hundreds of miles. Even a Publix or a Kroger was hard to find. Talk a little bit about this concept of what people used to call food deserts. You have been, you know, you educated me about food apartheid and what that looks Mm -hmm. like and the impact on the well being of people in the Black and Brown communities of having our own fresh, healthy food, and how that impact has been taken away by some food apartheid systems and how gardening can help restore that.
1: Um, This is a favorite topic of mine, um, especially when it's reframed in food apartheid. Um, That was coined by Karen Washington. I cannot take credit for that. Um, Karen Washington is a very, very well-known and very well-respected urban grower, Oh, I want to say in the Bronx. I know it's in New York. The reason why Mama Washington or Mama Karen, um, as a lot of people call her, the reason why she rephrased food deserts into food apartheid is because food deserts makes it sound like it's something that just naturally occurs of like, oh, that community does not have a grocery store or a fresh food market because it just naturally happened that way. We know that nothing just happens that way. Especially when it comes to society and how um, stratified, like, or how stratification happens in society. So, food apartheid, just like food justice, starts to expose a lot of the layers that are associated with it. So, food apartheid, meaning that there's not a lot of fresh food options in particular neighborhoods, has a direct link to redlining, where there was an, an active campaign to keep certain folks you know, black and brown folks, out of the well-desired neighborhoods. So yeah, the reason I like it being fra- reframed from food deserts to food apartheid is because it does peel back a lot of those layers of how something like this happened. Well, let's put all the poor people in one neighborhood and let's not put a grocery store there. Let's only put liquor stores, Dollar Generals, and fast food places there. What's going to happen? All they're going to be able to, sh- all the places they're going to be able to shop at are liquor stores dollar generals and fast food places. What's going to happen from that? Well, now we're going to have an uptick of different, um, like health ailments, diabetes, hypertension, blood pressure, or high blood pressure. Um, and like all those other diseases that are directly, attri- directly attributed to a lack of nutrition. Um, I will call those poverty diseases because they're a symptom of the larger problem that is poverty and lack of access.
0: Oh, that's so How good. How
1: gardening flips the head on that, especially when it's very local. Um, there's a really great example in LA. It's called Crop Swap LA. Um, they actually, they were about to lose their, they were about to lose their grocery store, or they were losing their grocery store. And so what one of the residents did his name is Jemiah Higgins. Um, what he did is he started a garden in his front yard. Because he was like, I'm about to lose my grocery store and I'm not going to have my kids, you know, I'm not going to have my kids suffer from this. So I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And so he started a a garden in his front yard, which back to the porch conversation, you can't have something in your front yard and not attract the community. You can't have something in your front yard and not attract fellowship. And so now it's like this whole urban like CSA program in the middle of LA, it's in the hood where they lost the grocery store, but the community came in and the community was like, we're going to take matters into our own hands. And that's, what's really important about gardening. That's why I'm very steadfast on (laughs) steadfast. That's why I'm very (laughs) steadfast on that mission of teaching people how to grow food and, you know, take care for their community in that way, like in the context of gardening, because when you take matters into your own hands, people can't tell you anything. They can't come in and dictate, well, you're going to have this many rations and you're going to have this availability to healthy food. It's like, no, I'm going to have the availability to healthy food that I give myself and that I give my community.
0: Mm, So good. And that's where You know, resistance, because that's really what justice is. It's this Mm -hmm. piece of resistance. That's how some people resist. Mm -hmm. You know, like Chuck and Flav said, that's how some people fight the power, is they say some people go stand in the street, some people um, change policy, some people plant a garden and plant some rows of cucumbers and tomatoes so that they can feed themselves in their community and not be reliant on oftentimes whether it is the food apartheid that's happening in your community where you don't have access to fresh produce, or it just costs 10 times more money. The Mm -hmm. one thing that you were talking about, how access to quality nutrition in a grocery store and all these things is really an economic thing. I can. I never forget leaving um, one institution that served predominantly um, first gen students, urban in Ohio, Northeast Ohio, and going to Tuscaloosa, Alabama, a school that is seventy five percent students from out of state. Most of them Orange County, tri state area. Lots of money. Oh you could people were jogging people were i mean it was a whole different it's like you dumped an Abercrombie and Fitch catalog into the campus everybody was fit everybody and i remember when one of my colleagues who followed me there and we worked at Alabama together he said you can see the difference that money makes in people's overall health guys walking around without a shirt i mean it it was, ju- it was completely different, the health and well-being of the students. And I said, because none of these students are on a Pell Grant. I mean, they just aren't. And so they grew up in a way that it costs more money, unless you're dealing with your own garden, it costs more money to eat at Whole Foods than it does to eat at Dollar General. Mm-hmm. Um, it costs more money at Chick Fil A to get the salad than it does the chicken sandwich, right? Um, which is has to be systemic, right? It, it should be the other way around if we really cared about the rising cost of healthcare and preventative medicine. One of the pieces you brought up that was so good when you're talking about the L.A. story is. This idea that people can just make it happen, the guy in his front yard. So Mm -hmm. some really think that to have access to a garden, their own stead in the city, if you're living in the city, that it takes a lot of land and a lot of watering and a lot of all the things. What tips do you have for people that live in urban areas if they are looking to get started in planting their own gardens?
1: Just do it. Like, and I know that sounds super like simplistic, but just do it. So when I lived in Arkansas, I had like a much bigger backyard. And so I was able to take up pretty much like half my backyard for my garden. And then we had the people, you know, the people yard for the kids and like, you know, barbecuing, whatever we needed it to be. Um, Here in Stockton, I live in an older home. And so it's by today's standards, I live on a pretty big lot. But it's, it's not acreage like not even close, (laughs) like, and then the way that the um, house and like the land is structured, the backyard is actually pretty tiny. So I really only have three garden beds in the middle of my backyard. And I'm like, okay, well, this obviously is not going to be enough for what I want to grow. So I looked into container gardening, which is how, like, that's how I got, that's how I gardened in college is I had pots, put my stuff in pots. Pots were starting to get expensive. Okay, let me go get a five gallon bucket from Home Depot. Or let me go over here to the deli and ask them if I can get the bucket that they got their pickles in. Clean it out. Might smell like pickles for a couple weeks, but it's a perfect place, you know, drill some holes into it. But that's a perfect place for me to grow a larger crop that needs like a deep root system. There's grow bags. You can get grow bags. And pots and like different garden towers, you can get that stuff at Dollar Tree now or Twenty Five tree, but you can get that stuff fairly cheap. So don't let acreage or lack of acreage be a hindrance to why you can't garden. Also, don't let money be a hindrance, um, especially now over the last like three years, gardening and urban homesteading has become very lucrative. Um, a lot of people flocked to gardening during the pandemic which is great but good old capitalism they're like okay well how can we monetize this how can we make the absolute most money off of this and so um pots started going up like to grow you know stuff in pots started getting you know really expensive soil bagged soil started getting super duper expensive and really shitty quality if i may be honest seeds started getting super expensive. I remember during the pandemic, some stores even pulled their seeds off of the floor because they said it was non-essential. How are you gonna tell me that growing food is non-essential when the whole canned food aisle is wiped out? Like, make it make sense. But I digress. Don't let lack of space or lack of money stop you. If this is something that you really wanna do, you really wanna garden, you really wanna get out there into the soil and reconnect with nature reconnect with your ancestors. Like that's truly for me, that's what it is, is reconnecting with my direct lineage ancestors and then just the ancestors in like an ethereal sense. If you really want to do that, just do it. Find a way that it is practical for you and a way that is sustainable for you. Because if it's not sustainable, you're not going to keep doing it. So if you don't want to have four, five, six garden beds that I eventually grew my garden into between my backyard and my front yard, if you don't want to do that, then just get a garden tower. Get one garden tower. You can grow 30 different plants in this garden tower. I got a coupon code if you want a discount. Just throwing that out there. Or go get some pots. Like if it's something that you really want to do, just go out and do it and do it in a way that is, again, sustainable or is practical and sustainable for yourself. Because if it's not sustainable, you're not going to keep up with it. And that's the whole point of being out in the garden, creating your own stead is doing so in a sustainable way in a practical way for yourself.
0: Mm. Well, and I think one of the things that you're mentioning is it's anyone I know who gardens, they started really small and mm-hmm. it gets addicting because there's this whole community. It's almost like a, a, a A cult. (laughs) You get before you know it, somebody is sucking you in. I'll give you. I'll give you some seeds. Oh, I'll teach you how to do this. And you start with literally a tomato plant. Every year for Mother's Day, I buy my mom uh, a tomato plant or an herb garden. Sometimes it's an Italian herb garden. Shout out to Bachman's in Minneapolis, and they'll send them to her house, and they give her the little herb garden with all Italian herbs, and then a tomato and I mean, she's in Minneapolis. So when the weather changes in the Twin Cities, it's like perfect growing space because it's warm, but it's not too warm at night. It gets enough rain, but it's sunny, all of this stuff. And the stuff just explodes. And she has friends over and gives it away and makes sauce and all this stuff. But it all starts with one little pot that has a tomato plant in it, and then it just becomes this thing, right? Um, it becomes the story of Stone Soup. Barb has the tomatoes. Her neighbor, who's a Southeast Asian woman, brings the um, the oregano and the other the other spices and herbs, and people start putting things together. And before you know it, they're having, you know, a, full-on a, a whole a full on meal that they all provided. You talked about chickens. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a whole different story and a pivot, but I don't, (laughs) I, I was listening to you I think it was on your YouTube channel. It was, it was somewhere that I was getting my, my Tiffany fix. And you were talking about this idea of everybody thinks they can do chickens now and get eggs because eggs are so expensive. Now mm-hmm. I'm a weirdo. I was watching TV the other day and I saw the price of eggs a year ago and the price of eggs now. And I said, people are talking about getting the whole chickens for a dollar difference, a dozen. I mean, I get it. I, mm-hmm. I I have some privilege now that I didn't have. So I would have done that, but I sure as heck, I'm not going to have chickens. Talk about the power of self-sufficiency, but also demystify this idea of, I'm just going to get some chickens because eggs are costing another dollar a dozen.
1: Yeah. Um, and like, that's such like a hot topic right now, because it's actually, it's chick season. So a lot of people are like, oh my God, my chicks are here. And I get to grow much like you're not grow my chicks. We are pretty much growing chicks, Um, but I get to raise my chicks or like I get to hatch my eggs Um, and that's all fine and dandy. Um, But like, yeah. Unlike gardening, you can just kind of jump into gardening. But when it comes to keeping animals, don't just like jump into that um, because you could potentially cause harm to yourself or to the chickens. Um, like to the animals themselves. So definitely like, don't just think that you're going to run down the tractor supply, buy a chick, and then you're going to have eggs in 12 weeks because chickens actually take, some breeds will start laying around like 18 weeks. Most don't start laying until like 24, 26 weeks. So you can go out and get a chick today, but you're not going to get eggs for another six months. And you got to feed that chick, keep the chick alive, keep the chick safe. (laughs) all before you actually get an egg. Um, So cautionary tale, don't just jump into chickens, do your research. Um, However, if you want to keep chickens, because there's also like a dialogue of like, well, no, chickens cost too much money. Like y'all are crazy. Like it's not gonna happen that way. I have four chickens. Legally, I can only keep four chickens in the city. So I have four chickens and monthly cost for those chickens is probably 20 bucks but I get two dozen eggs a week, like at the height of laying season. So yeah, for me, it's way more economical to keep chickens and, you know, have my own, like my background or not my background, but my backyard eggs, which then like my harvest, I share out with my neighbors. Um, My parents will come down and come get some. Um, I'll share them with like our baseball friends, whoever. Um, But for self-sufficiency, I like self-sufficiency I do or the idea of self-sufficiency but true self-sufficiency is very hard like it's very hard to be everything all at once all of the time so I prefer the term community sense community sufficiency meaning relying on your community and now with social media with the uh, long very very long reach of the internet your community doesn't just have to be your house your next door neighbor on the left, your next door neighbor on the right in the house behind you. It can literally be me and then, you know, somebody all the way in Kentucky. That can be your community and you can rely on that community because we all have different strengths. We all have different talents that should be celebrated and shared in, with, and within the community in order for the community to thrive and take care of itself.
0: That's a really good point. I was thinking about. Facebook Marketplace. Mm-hmm. It's a little sketchy sometimes, but there's stuff. I mean, I we, I our dishwasher. I was just tired of the dishwasher sometimes. Just and it it always had issues. And we bought our house. It was built in 2017, so the dishwasher wasn't super old, but it was to the house. And I just decided let's just get a new dishwasher. I'm tired. I don't want to fix it. I don't have time. Um, I'm tired of paying a guy but there really wasn't anything wrong with it. Like Somebody who was a wrench turner could have gotten that dishwasher working and, and it would be great. The motor was great. The pump was great. So there was this young couple in the middle of nowhere, Kentucky, that I said, look, if you can get it, you can have it. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's that kind of sustainability mm-hmm. um, as a community. I think we forget and we, for so long, said, Well, I'm just tired of Zoom and I'm tired of virtual, but community can be built in so many different ways now. Mm-hmm. Um, you and I are in community together, and you're in California and I'm in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And we can share community to create space and support for each other, but also create comfortable community like what we do here. I'm trying to have make uncomfortable conversations more and more comfortable in community spaces. Can you talk a little bit about the supply chain, right? It's one of the last kind of nuts and bolts things that I need an expert to talk about because we are having real impacts. You go to the grocery store, stuff in there, Mm -hmm. Um, so talk about how this supply chain has intentionally or unintentionally impacted food and how, you know, there's so many things that impact everybody, but always impact the poor and the black and the brown the most.
1: Absolutely. Um, so two answers for that. I'll give you the not tinfoil hat version first. So how the supply chain has affected just like health, how it has affected access to food, like that's a no. You know, that's a no brainer. Um, and let's make it a little bit more human, too. Um, instead of just saying like, "Oh, well, the supply chain has you know affected these things," we have to understand that we lost a lot of people during COVID. We had lost a lot of people. Because of COVID, and a lot of those people may have worked in supply chain logistics, may have worked in the warehouse, and so now that they aren't there, it's a strain on that system. So it's not just like the industry or the um, the system itself that is causing all of this harm or causing all of these like struggles and difficulty. Like there's a there's, there's human loss that's behind all of that that contributed to that. You know,
0: that is so, so, so good. So many people say, well, the supply chain, we lost millions of people, millions like of people. people are dead, mm-hmm. like million and And there are people who are dead and there's people who have been adversely impacted for the rest of their lives and they can't work. Everybody knows somebody who can't work anymore mm-hmm. are dealing with long-term COVID effects. And the people who were hurt the most by that are the people in the... Um, <laughs> the 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 Purdue chicken factories the mm-hmm. the the people that are picking grapes for a living the people who are doing that work so the reality is we lost millions of people worldwide in this this uh, global pandemic which the people were the actual supply chain so that's that's a brilliant point of view um, that I hadn't thought of so I appreciate you for for coaching me up coach.
1: Oh, no problem. No problem.
0: All right, friend. Good to All see right. you. you Take good care. Bye-bye.
1: All right. see ya. Thank you
0: for listening to this episode of Get Uncomfortable. Get Uncomfortable is produced in partnership between Adam Smith and me, Rachel Hansen. There are a number of ways that you could support the show, and we would appreciate any support you could give. Uh, you can leave us a review anywhere you listen to podcasts. You can send us an email and our email addresses are in the show notes, or you can share an episode with a friend. This will help us to build community and promote true healing through uncomfortable conversations. Until next time, stay uncomfortable.